Christ Jesus our Lord, from whom we receive the Holy Spirit. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Know that the Lord is God, it is he that made us and we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Let us pray. Father, you sent your word to bring us truth and your spirit to make us holy. Through them we come to know the mystery of your life. Help us to worship you, one God, in three persons, by proclaiming and living our faith in you. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 115, All Creatures of Our God and King.
God the Father forgives us our sin in Jesus Christ and heals us by the Holy Spirit. Let us therefore put away all anger and bitterness, all slander and malice, and all our other sins. Let us confess them and know that we rely upon God for our redemption. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we confess that we have sinned against you and have done evil in your sight. We have transgressed your law and neglected your word. Forgive us our sins, O Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who was put to death for our trespasses. Give us the grace and power we need to put away all hurtful things. Deliver us from the bondage of sin. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk from this day forward in your holy ways. For we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Christian people, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all who with hearty repentance and faith turn to him, he has mercy upon us and delivers and pardons us from all our sins. He confirms and strengthens us in all goodness and brings us to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I declare to you in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you are truly forgiven of all your sin as you have faith in Christ and repent from them. And this we are guaranteed by the word of God, and we receive this good news of the gospel together and say, praise be to God. Dearly beloved, the Lord God Almighty commanded his people to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, teaches us that from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, the weekly day of rest, and the first day of the week ever since Christ's resurrection. We gather for worship on Sunday as a day set apart from the other days of the week. It is fine for the church to gather on the other days of the week to worship God. In Geneva, Calvin's Geneva back in the 16th century, and this was not uncommon, People would come to worship uh, every day. There was a, a morning time of morning prayer and an evening prayer for many of the churches, but uh, definitely in the morning every day. And that's fine, that's good, but definitely we are to worship God on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. In the Reformed tradition, we believe that we must worship God on Sunday. What we learn from Scripture is this day is the high holy day of the week. This is the day that Christ rose from the dead. It is the day the Lord appeared to his disciples and opened the scriptures to them, as we read in the Gospel of Luke. He also took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And Luke says their eyes were opened and they recognized him on this day, the first day of the week. This is the day the church gathered to hear the apostles' teaching. This is the day the apostle John was in the spirit and saw the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the day that Jesus came and passed the peace to his disciples. You remember that in the upper room. And the first day of the week is the day that the apostle tells us the Christians, tells the Christians to set aside their gifts and offerings for the church. To worship God on Sunday is not optional for us. It's not like it's the same as worship on any other day. But neither is it simply an act of obedience that we're just simply to do it. There's a law and then we just obey the law. The Lord comes 
there's a gracious moment that happens on the, in, in the worship on the Lord's Day. The Lord comes and graciously blesses us in a very special way here on the Lord's Day in our worship of him. So then, let us make every effort together to worship our Lord Jesus Christ on this day, the Lord's Day. For this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our next hymn is number 107, Praise Ye the Father. Let us now pray to our Heavenly Father. Almighty God, who is our Heavenly Father, not an earthly Father, but our Heavenly Father, the one good, perfect Father who created us and gives us life and upholds us, we thank you for all you have done for us and that you have revealed yourself in your Son, that you are the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Help us to love Jesus and enable us to follow him, to cling to his words, and to be grateful forever for his gracious sufferings and death, for his triumphant resurrection and for his glorious ascension, and for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit, whereby he has accomplished our salvation. Our merciful Savior, remember your holy church throughout this world. Unite all who profess and call themselves Christians in the bond of a holy faith, the true faith, as one body. Replenish your people with the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may be witnesses of Christ the Lord, proclaiming him in word and deed, even in a very difficult society and world where we can do that. And having been kept by him unto the end, may we be in full communion with you and with one another in your eternal and glorious kingdom. So here are our prayers, not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters in other churches, especially those who come to mind. Here are our prayers.
For those in anguish, we pray, who do not have comfort of body and soul for many different reasons. Those who have little to eat, who wake up every day in fear, who have to run and and hide uh, many times in their life. May we show them Christ our Savior who gives us new life and is our Lord. May we show this to them by comforting them and helping them and not just speaking the words to them. By your Spirit, make the proclamation of the gospel powerful with our mission workers who are in many places where people are indeed threatened and in danger. We pray for Sam Fulta, Hiro Hakobor in Ukraine, for Mike McCabe, Tony Curto, their families, the churches where they work in China, in India, in Ukraine. Bless them to be busy in the work of Christ, what he's given us to do for the world. May they have the courage of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. Hear our prayers for our mission workers and the proclamation of the gospel in this world. We pray you would bring an end to the war in Ukraine and that you would stop violence in the cities of our own nation, especially as the summer comes upon us and the history has been such great violence increases in our cities. We pray, O oh God, that you would diminish that. Keep safe the churches in the Middle East and do not let them be obliterated. We pray for peace that comes from good order and a just government. We thank you for those who protect us and help keep law and order. We also pray for the freedom to speak of our faith in this society where there is a strong pushback. Give us discernment between propaganda and speculation and opinion and what is true and real. Hear our prayers. Look with favor upon the homes of your people. Preserve the order of the family so that fathers and mothers together raise their children. Defend them against evil. Supply all their needs according to the riches of your grace. And may Christian families be a good example of what is a good order for your society. Make them places of the peace and love and joy of Christ. Hear our prayers for fathers and mothers. Holy Father, build up Providence Church and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church with your omnipotent grace. Bless us with the power of the Spirit to be busy as Christ's servants in this world, to proclaim in word and deed that the Savior of the world is the Lord of all of life. And come to our aid, O God, to those in need, those who are in poor health, for the frail, those who are recuperating. We pray for your aid and for your healing. We pray for Don and Eduardo and Shirley, for Jeff and Linda, for Fawn and Bob, for our friends Becky and Karen and Angie, Tom, Phil, Dominique, Bob, Chris, Caroline, Vicki, and others we name to you in silence. Look with compassion upon the sorrows of your servants for whom our prayers are offered. And remember them, O Lord, in your mercy. Nourish their their souls with patience. Comfort them with a sense of your goodness. Lift up your favor upon them and give them peace through Jesus Christ and in the power of your spirit. 
For our friends who do not have faith in Christ, draw them to Christ, we pray. And to those who are languishing in their weakness, give them grace. We also cry out to you for those who are struggling to live their life in obedience to you, and we bring their names to you one by one in silence. Grant them the power to resist temptation, the love to serve you, with hope of the inheritance set for us in Christ. And we pray you would give them courage as they seek to follow Christ and obey him. Bless them, O Lord, with the abundance of your grace so that their lives are overflowing and they may give to others. We entrust ourselves to you and those for whom we pray. We entrust all of these in the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. And now let us pray our prayer for illumination as we prepare to hear God's word read and preached. 
Let us pray. Father in heaven, in what would otherwise be a dark and hopeless existence, you have given us your word in your spirit to provide light and life and understanding and hope. We pray that you would uh, foster these things in our hearts as we hear your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our reading starts with our Old Testament reading in Genesis. Chapter 1, the first five verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. Our Psalter response in the bulletin is from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, you have established strength. Because of your foes. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. Also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord. Our epistle reading is from Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 13, um, verses 11 through 14. We'll go through 14. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you all. And our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 28. Beginning in verse 16. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Today is Trinity Sunday, and I always make sure to mark that in our year, Christian year. Um, it could be easy to observe the events of, the Christ, of, life, of Christ's life, like his birth and his death, his resurrection. But Trinity Sunday also belongs in there, and it's very important I make sure to uh, preach a sermon on that every year because of how that doctrine and belief in a triune God has uh, dwindled or been attacked um, so much over the history of the church and is definitely under duress these days as well. So we recognize it and you hear again of God being the triune God. In our scripture lessons, this is brought out, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't really formed as a doctrine in the first century, um, but the, the ingredients for it were all there. And so if you look at our scripture text, just real quick, listen to me. In our gospel lesson, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And each one of you, as I look out, have been baptized in that name. And it's interesting, the name, it's singular name, not names, but you have three uh, names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so you've got this oneness there plus the three. It's not hard, I don't think, to build the doctrine of the Trinity out of Scripture. The epistle lesson is the closing blessing to the church. I noticed that I dropped verse 14 from uh, putting it in the bulletin, which is the key verse. Um, so we made sure to read that. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's the apostolic blessing. I often use it at the end of worship here. And then Christians have also interpreted Genesis 1 according to the Trinity. <clears throat> the three persons... <clears throat> Excuse me, the three persons of the triune God are there in the act of creation as Christians look at it, knowing the triune God. So, real quick, I wanted to point that out to you. Verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God, God the Father. Verse 2 says, And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Some translations would say the wind of God, but that's because the word, the Hebrew word, as I told you last week, can mean breath, wind, or spirit. Anyway, um, it's been understood in a triune sense. So the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. That's the Holy Spirit. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit. And then, this is sometimes we miss this, but verse 3 says, And God said, and that's the Word of God. That's Christ, the Son of God. God created all things, as Colossians says, through his word, through the word. So God's word is present at the creation. The Gospel of John helps us think that way about God's word. John begins his gospel um, with the word that's in the beginning, uh, begins his gospel with the, the word who is in the beginning with God and was God, as John says. All things were made through him. 
through the word. So John seems to mimic uh, Genesis chapter 1, but then the word that John is talking about is that word through whom God creates all things, and it's a person. And later on, he says the word became flesh and was manifest among us. So John teaches us to think about God's creation with the word, the word being present and the word being Jesus Christ. So in our scripture lessons, we have the Trinity. <clears throat> now, God, Christian worship, Christians worship the triune God. And that's something that, that should become innate, and we should all know that um, as we've spent time in the church, maybe been raised in the church. We all should know we worship the triune God. Unfortunately, there are those, and I'll mention this a little bit later, those Christians who just seem to have totally missed the fact that we, we worship a triune God. When we say triune, we, we are talking about the Trinity, the three-in-one God. And this is one of the upfront beliefs of the church. If you were to say, what, is it, what does a Christian believe? Well, there are, there are certainly some differences in what Christians believe from one church to another. Baptists, Presbyterians, Roman Catholics, whatever, believe some things that are in conflict with each other or, or disagree with some things. But if it's a Christian church, one of the things that they'll all believe is that God is the three-in-one God. He's the triune God. <clears throat> so it's one of the upfront beliefs of the church. <clears throat> we measure people's faith by it. Now, that doesn't mean we need to run around and you know, quiz everyone who says, I'm a Christian. Okay, pull out your Christian card and let's see if the Trinity's in there. Um, sometimes we end up getting into that kind of discussion. But a church, if it's claiming to be a Christian church, and the Christians within that church need to hold to the belief in the Trinity. That doesn't mean they all understand it very well or they can articulate it very well, but we do measure people's faith and the faith of a church by this doctrine. It's one of the key doctrines for the Christian church. We recognize faithful Christian churches with it, and it is one of our membership vows. Our membership vows kind of spell out what is sort of essential to be being a Christian and belonging to a church. And one of the vows says, Do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh? It's a very strong Trinitarian statement. We invoke the triune name of God constantly in our worship and prayer. So Christians worship the triune God, and that really means we worship him. So in our worship service, we invoke the triune name of God. Our worship begins and ends this way. So at the beginning of worship, there's that, that uh, line, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord. And we might stop and think, wait a minute, it's missing the spirit. But immediately... We go into a prayer of invocation where we ask the Holy Spirit to come and be present with us. So at the opening of, worship, of the worship service is a, a triune um, a beginning. We, we understand God as we uh, recognize God and pray to him as the triune God. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is there at the beginning of the liturgy. It's also, the, the triune God's also at the conclusion of worship when you receive the benediction. And whatever little phrase, often I pull a phrase from Scripture off, I try to use apostolic uh, blessings and all that. But I always, at the end of it, say, 
uh, refer to the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you now and forever. So it has a Trinitarian conclusion to our worship. Many of our hymns include stanzas that praise the triune God. Do you notice that this morning? They all have, uh, at least our principal uh, hymns during the service, have um, references to the Trinity. Like the first one that says, Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. O praise Him, O praise Him, alleluia. And our prayers have Trinitarian endings to them. So when I taught a class at a Christian high school, these are ninth, 10th, 11th graders, uh, in one of the courses I taught, they had to uh, learn some hermeneutical principles, and, they, and one of those principles is you always pray when you start studying Scripture and working with Scripture. You should pray when you read Scripture, but you also pray and ask God to help you understand it and how to interpret it. And so I'd ask them to write prayers, and they would pray, you know, Dear God, please help us understand this text. Amen. And I'd say, That's not a Christian prayer. F. No, (laughs) that's not a Christian prayer. So they had to learn what a Christian prayer is. A Christian prayer is going to pray to God the Father, but it's going to end with something that indicates it's Christian, in the name of Jesus Christ. And an even beefier kind of ending to a Christian prayer is, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, O Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting, amen. Now, we don't often want to do that because it's... Americans, so we like to shorten everything and make it brief, you know. But maybe we shouldn't make our prayers brief and the endings of our prayers brief. Maybe we need to include, often include, that Trinitarian conclusion to our prayers, recognizing that we are praying to the triune God. Yet even though the Trinity sits on the front row of the Christian faith, I cannot tell you how many people I have met who cannot make heads or tails of it, and they, because of that, which is fine, it just means you need to be taught, but they then make the decision that it's a pointless doctrine. That because this is hard to understand and it doesn't make complete sense to me, therefore it's a pointless doctrine. And truth be told, there can be some confusion about this doctrine. So sometimes you'll hear people say things and you're thinking, that's not really what the doctrine of the Trinity is. But... They're trying, and you know they're not rejecting the faith. They just don't know how to say it in a way that's, that's real sharp. But we confess three persons in one God. So the young people in, in the church, um, if you've been talking to your parents about what we believe as Christians, if you've been looking at a catechism, like the children's catechism, the question comes up pretty quick about who is God. And then the, the, the answer is you know, one God in three persons. And that's the phrase that no matter who you are as a Christian, when you hear Trinity, you need to think that, one God in three persons, and then name them, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So there's the essence, the, the kernel of the doctrine. But it seems contradictory, three in one. Our reason snaps when we try to make sense of it. The Trinity doesn't fit nicely into the categories and structures of our mind. So we accept it as Christians and we believe it, not necessarily because we can totally rationally make sense of it, although there is good reason that goes with it, but even if we can't totally rationally work it out, we believe it because it's based on the word of God and the church has taught it. Now, as a pastor, I'm usually pushed whenever I talk to someone about the Trinity. And in another church, in another place, I met a woman who had grown up in that church. So I came to serve that church, and we ended up meeting a woman there. 
Um, and in the course of pastoral ministry, Heidi and I, we developed a relationship with this woman and her husband, both were members of the church. They'd grown up in the church. And I asked if she would like to study a catechism with us. So she agreed, and they both agreed, and we began. Heidi and I would go over to their house, and we'd talk through the catechism. And one of the first questions was about the Trinity. And she said she'd never heard of the Trinity before, which I found unbelievable. She'd grown up in this Presbyterian church and never heard that word. That's what she said. <clears throat> and I think her husband was in the same boat. That church, unfortunately, had become very excited about other things. You might even say tertiary, other things that you know, kind of walk the line on the Christian, in the Christian church. They'd become excited about those things. And so one generation in that church had failed to teach the next generation some of the essentials of the Christian faith, and the Trinity is one of them. So suddenly, I had to teach her what it means to worship the triune God. What, is the, what does the Trinity mean? And now I have to teach you, that, you know, how we worship that triune God. So how do you begin and what do you say when you meet someone like that? And believe me, there isn't just one, or these are not just random examples. It, it's uh, all too common. Fortunately, our belief in the Trinity, and this is where I would encourage you to start, doesn't begin with our definitions and analogies, or even with the teaching of the church. That's, those are important, but that's not where it begins. It starts with God coming to us in Jesus Christ. Um, here's an example. Years ago, a man I had heard of, I had come to, to know his name, I heard his name, but uh, I'd never met him, I didn't know anything about him, and he... Um, um, he walked up to Heidi and I. We had gone out to uh, interview with his church, and he walked up to Heidi and I at a bus stop and introduced himself to us. Now, I wouldn't have been able to pick him out from anyone because I had never met him. I didn't know anything about him. And he walked up and he said, Hello, I am Frank Weedle. And before he presented himself to us, we had no personal knowledge of him. After we met him, we became friends, and I began to know him personally. And that's what it's like with God's encounter with us in Jesus Christ and by his Holy Spirit. There's an encounter there. And that's where our knowledge of the Trinity begins. When it comes to the Trinity, we certainly do need to learn the teaching of the church. I'm not trying to dismiss or downplay the teaching of the church. It's very, very important. We must love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our mind's involved in that. So we need to learn, and our minds need to be shaped, and, and uh, we need to learn these, these teachings in the church. We must grow in our knowledge of God and his salvation for us. The scripture says that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his might, great might which he accomplished in Christ. That's what the scripture says, that you may know. So we need to know. The church is to teach who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, until the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. The Trinity is a staple of the Christian faith. So I am going to take a little bit of time in the sermon to, to explain that teaching. Just like you need protein in your diet to be healthy and to live, so the Christian faith must have the Trinity. If you want to have a, Christ, a healthy Christian life and faith, you have to have the protein, if you will, of the Trinity. Um, there are churches and Christians who abandoned that, notably in the 19th century. They had started out, some of them were Puritan churches in the Northeast. 
they had uh, congregational churches. They had started out with sort of a, a standard Orthodox Puritan kind of faith. They'd worshipped and served the triune God, but they began to replace that faith in the triune God with a faith in a Unitarian God. One God, no three persons. And they began to believe, these churches began to believe in sort of this vague general deity who's far away, sort of not too involved in our lives. And guess what? Guess what kind of Christians they became, what kind of churches they became? They became very generic Christians, very generic churches that believed just about what everyone believed. They didn't stand out in society. And they did just about what everyone else is doing. There's nothing distinct about them because they'd lost a faith in a distinct God. Now, contrary to such a flat-lined, brand-X, generic kind of faith, the Christian church says, I believe in God, the Father, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Or to put it more theologically, we believe in one God and three persons, as I mentioned at the beginning. So God is one. In other words, he can't be broken into parts. So you take anything, and we seem to be able to always reduce it down to more, right? We thought at one point, well, we, a century ago maybe, um, and I'm not real great with the science, but they thought they'd come up with sort of the basic fundamental particle of, of creation, the, the atom, right? But as they develop, you know, electron, you know, all the, the, the uh, research tools and all that, they discover, oh, no, the atom's made of more parts, neutrons and protons and all that. And then they break that down. They find more. And are they done? I don't think so. So we keep trying to find, the, you know, we keep reducing things down. You can't do that with God. He's one. One means simple unity. You cannot be broken apart. You cannot take God and somehow break off the Son from the Father and the Holy Spirit. You can't break off the Father from the Son and the Holy Spirit. So God is one. And, um, and he can't be broken into parts. In that very essence of God, there are three, and this is the way that I like to say it, inseparable, interpenetrating personal relations. Or to put it in a simple way, God, there's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But those Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are referring to these interpenetrating, these personal relations that cannot be separated from each other. So these, the personal relations are the substance of the one God. Now, does this whole thing sound unusual to you? Yes, it should. Why? Because there's nothing else like God. Now, there might be, Augustine talked about vestiges of the Trinity within creation, like fingerprints of the Trinity that show up in creation. But that's not the same thing as saying there's an identical sort of thing in creation to God himself. There isn't. So God is unusual. And that, that's okay. That, that, that doesn't mean it's irrational. The church set out an orthodox confession of God as triune in the 4th century, in 325 um, A.D. with the Nicene Creed. And so we have the final form of the Nicene Creed that we confess in the church, and there you have the Trinity expressed in a way that goes back to the 4th century. But even before the 4th century, the church was talking about God as triune, using that kind of way of thinking about God in its worship long before the 4th century. 
And so today, the belief that God is triune has worked its way into our worship, our faith, our life, and it makes all the difference between being a Christian or not. We confess and worship the Trinity, the triune God. And if we do not believe in the triune God, then we don't believe in God. It comes down to that. We might have some idea of God, some vague notion of God, but we don't really know God or believe in him if we don't believe in the triune God. Now, the church's doctrine of the Trinity is not based on our theology or even our faith, as I said before. It's important that we know that, but that's not what it's based on. It's based on an encounter. And we have encounters with other people all the time. With Jesus Christ, we don't come face-to-face with an idea. We come face-to-face with the living God. It's an encounter between God and us. And in our text from Matthew, after his resurrection, Jesus encountered his disciples. Now, of course, Jesus' encounter with them began long before that. When he was born and his ministry began, Jesus' encounter with his disciples began there. And Jesus called them to follow him. He taught them. They witnessed his acts of deliverance and mercy. In our reading this morning, Jesus came to his disciples again on the mountain. So he's had an encounter with his disciples, and now he comes with this uh, very important encounter on the mountain. This time he comes as the risen Lord. The Lord to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given came to them, and he approached them, and they were together, Jesus and his disciples. And we could go through and parse all the things that, have hap- that happened on that mountain, and I've preached sermons on it. We could talk about his, how he declared his authority to them. He commissioned them to make disciples of the nations. He commanded them to baptize the converts. And Jesus assured them that he, the Lord, would be present with them. But with all of that, let's not overlook the basic encounter between Jesus and his disciples. The church's teaching of the Trinity is based on this encounter with Jesus Christ. With Jesus, we encounter the living God. And guess what? Jesus continues to encounter us. This isn't a one-time thing that happened back on the mountain. That is a unique, special event when Jesus encountered his disciples and and sent them out as his apostles. But that didn't mean Jesus is done encountering people. He's encountered us. He comes to us by his spirit, calling us and commanding us and drawing us to himself. There's a personal encounter going on there. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus comes to us in baptism in the proclamation of the word, like right now, in the Lord's Supper, and in the church, the fellowship of the church with his brothers and sisters. He comes to us. Just as much as you have come here and seen each other and encountered each other here in this worship, the Lord comes and encounters us as well. He encounters us just like he encountered his disciples on the mountain. You and the Holy One, the risen Lord and us. He encounters us as sure as you and I have encountered each other today. Now, how many songs or hymns do we sing in the church that make a self-correction in the middle of the song? Can you think of any? They actually have a self-correction. They correct what they're saying in the middle. It's written into the hymn. Well, we have one, and we've sung it before. I didn't think about this when I chose the hymn, so it's not the communion hymn today, but it is one that we've sung we have a communion hymn that, that says, Come, risen Lord, and deign to be our guest. No, here's the correction, no, let us be your guests and with you dine. 
Jesus invites us to eat with him in the Lord's Supper. We don't invite him to join us. So there's an encounter that's initiated by Jesus at the Lord's Supper. Our scripture readings fill all this out for us. They fill out the fact that in Christ, it's the triune God who encounters us, not just Jesus. So yes, Jesus comes to us, but the triune God is coming to us in Jesus Christ. So listen again to our readings. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then the epistle reading, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Jesus Christ is in place with the Father and the Son, Father and the Spirit. This triune God who meets us in Christ is the one who encounters us as our creator, our redeemer, and our sanctifier. He's not like any other person that we encounter. He comes to us as the one who creates, the one who redeems, the one who sanctifies. And so I want to fill that out for you. As, uh, as God encounters us in Jesus Christ, we're encountering the triune God who's our creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. God who encounters us is the creator of heaven and earth, and he's your creator. He fashioned the creation, as our Psalter reading from Psalm 8 says. The work of his fingers, the moon and the stars, the sheep and the oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And right in the middle of it, in that psalm, he made man. It refers to man, male and female. He made man with sinew and bone and heart and mind. He made man in his image. He made us to laugh and sing, to work and give thanks, all in the service and love of our creator. God encountered us in creation. And created us. God also, the creator, encountered Israel. He created the nation of Israel, leading them through the water of the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And the scripture says in Deuteronomy, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he fixed the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. When God created Israel, he created his people. It was an encounter. And even though we have sinned and the triune God, um, the, even though we've sinned and turned against God, the triune God encounters us in Jesus Christ, and as he does so, he recreates us. So washing and cleansing and burning and fashioning you anew, the triune God will make you his new people who laugh and sing and work and give thanks all in service and love to him. When Christ encounters us, the Creator holds us in His hand and breathes new life into us. So the God who encounters us is the triune God who creates us, and not just the original creation, but recreates us. The God who encounters us is the Redeemer of sinners. And although we hated God and refused to obey Him along with the whole human race and chose to live for ourselves, the triune God does not walk away from us. It's not like a marriage that's gone bad or a friendship that has soured. This is the Redeemer that Israel knew. Over and over again, the people of God followed their own ways. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. And God condemned their sin. He said no to their sin. God removed them from the land. They broke God's covenant with them. God's covenant was trampled into the ground by his people. And all of this, but God did not abandon his people. He came back to them, 
over and over again. He encountered them again and again and came back to deliver them from their captivity to sin. He came back to pardon them. He came back to redeem them from all their iniquities. This is the triune God who encounters you in Jesus Christ. He recreates you and he redeems you. And although you've sinned against him and you continue to struggle with sin, he does not abandon you, but he comes to redeem you. And he says no to your sin. Do not ever think the triune God doesn't say no to your sin. He does. But he doesn't leave you in the dust. The triune God encounters you in Christ to forgive your sin, to remove it, to reconcile you to himself, to make you his righteous people. And finally, the God who encounters us is our sanctifier. He's the one who created us, recreates us, redeems us, and sanctifies us. And part of sanctification is sustaining, upholding something. He upholds his creation. He keeps it from falling down. All those dire predictions about what will happen to this world, and we certainly can ravage the world, we can disturb it, and yet here we are. Even though we may be poor managers of God's creation, he holds it up. He sustains his creation, giving it the seasons and food it needs. And every day we live our lives, and underneath are the everlasting arms of God. We can't hold it up ourselves. Try as we might, our mortal bodies give way, our minds falter and snap, and our confidence dries up. There's this old sculpture, well, it's a classic antiquity, of, this, of the heroic man Atlas holding up the world. You've probably seen it. The globe of the world's on his shoulders, and he's sitting there. I don't know what he's standing on. You ever wonder about that? There's space there. You know, what is he, what's, what's the counterforce? But anyway, there's brawny Atlas. His muscles are taut. He's straining to hold the world in his place. But that's a, really a, a mispresentation of how this world is held up. It's God who sustains us. It's God who holds up this world. We don't hold it up ourselves. God holds up his creation, and he holds us up in his salvation. So he's, his sustaining us is also sanctifying us and holding us in his salvation. So we would all be lost if God saved us and then set us back on the right path and then gave us a little push and said, here's your Bible and the Christian faith, and then sent us off like Hansel and Gretel into the forest. You know what happened there. But that's not what the triune God does who encounters in Christ. He recreates you, he redeems you, and he sanctifies you in his salvation. He holds you up in his grace and love and nourishing your faith and life with the preaching of his word and communion. He heals your sin-sick heart and mind. He gives aid to you in the fellowship of his people, the church. He comforts and reassures you that he will not abandon you. He gives you all that you need to serve him in this world. And remember that last promise that Jesus gave to his disciples in our gospel lesson, Lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Now, May the triune God bring the attitudes of your hearts and the thoughts of your minds into agreement with the Christian faith that's focused on the Trinity. Banish the attitudes and thoughts that God forgives you and heals you, but you may decide for yourself how you will live. That you may decide what suits you and what does not suit you about obeying God's word. For God is your creator as well as your redeemer and sanctifier, And he has bound us to himself, so we must obey him. 
Banish the attitudes and thoughts that God is your creator and sanctifier, but you are held fast by the powers of your upbringing and sinful impulses. In short, you are what you are. There's been a huge reversal in our society where at one time people would call certain things a sin, and even if they did them, they would know they're not right and they'd be ashamed of them. Or they'd look for help. And we all have those things that we do. But what's happened in our society is no longer do we call those things sinful or against God's purposes or anything like that or contrary to nature. We've embraced them and we've said, these things are good. And that basically is rejecting God as our redeemer, as, as the one who creates us and sustains us, but he also delivers us from the bondage of sin. And if we've turned all those things around and said, well, that's not really sin, and we embrace it and celebrate it, then we don't need God as our redeemer. And you remain trapped in your sin. Banish the attitudes in your hearts and the thoughts in your mind that God is your creator and redeemer, but somehow being a Christian depends on you, that it's all up to you. That's one of the great things I like about the Reformed tradition. It, it emphasizes that it's God, not us, that accomplishes our salvation, that, that we live out the Christian life dependent on his grace and power, not our own. It's not all up to you. Being a Christian depends, it doesn't depend on you holding yourself up to be a faithful follower of Christ. God is your sanctifier as well as your creator and redeemer, and he makes you his holy and blessed people. He makes you his holy and blessed people, not what you do. It doesn't let you off the hook. It, it, if you love God and you've been joined in faith and baptism with the triune God, you're going to want to be holy and, and, and obey him and follow him. But it's God who makes you holy. The triune God who encounters you in Christ is your God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who has given grace to us, your servants, by the confession of a true faith, to acknowledge the glory of the eternal trinity, the triune God, and in the power of the divine majesty to worship the unity of the triune God, we ask you to keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory. For you, O Father, to you, O Father, with the Son and the Holy Spirit, may all praise and glory be given, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, let us stand and confess our very triune creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. 
And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 100, Holy, Holy, Holy. This is the Lord's table, where we are met and nourished by the risen Lord, and where we have true fellowship with one another as co-members of this one body. We hear the words of Jesus' institution of this meal. As they were eating, Jesus and his disciples, he took bread and blessed and broke it, 
and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We welcome to this table all who have been baptized, who have publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members in good standing of a Christian church or belonging to a Christian church. You are to come to this table with a true faith in Jesus Christ, a sorrow for and willingness to turn from sin, and a determination in reliance upon God's grace to lead a godly life in peace with and love toward your brothers and sisters. Christian people, today we have been reminded that the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has met us, and not just God, but God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's important to make that distinction. This day we've confessed our sin, we've received the assurance of God's forgiveness, we've heard God's call to live in love. So as you come to the supper, I exhort you to remember the grace that is yours in Him, and strengthened by the sacrament, embrace God in His Trinity. And come to this meal with joy. Rejoice in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. Be strengthened by his gifts and find here the grace you need to follow where he leads. Join me, join me in giving thanks to God <clears throat> for our salvation and new life in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and it's good and a joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image, you breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, the captivity of sin. You made covenant to be our one and only Lord. And you spoke to us through your prophets and the teaching of your apostles. So with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name. And we join that great hymn that is being spoken in heaven. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. Your spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce the time had come when you would save your people. And he healed the sick, he fed the hungry, and he ate with sinners. By the baptism of the suffering and death and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and spirit. When the Lord Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your word and Holy Spirit. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. As we proclaim the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, now, by the Holy Spirit, and with this bread and this cup, may our eating and drinking be a communion in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ and one with each other, and one in the ministry to all the world, until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, 
the Holy Spirit, in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And together we give our thanks and say, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Please bow your heads in prayer. Almighty and eternal God, you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and live and reign in the perfect unity of love. 
Hold us firm in this faith that we may know you in all your ways and evermore rejoice in your eternal glory, who is the three, the, who are the three persons and yet one God, now and forever. Amen. Excuse me. Our final hymn is the insert, Lights Abode Celestial Salem.
Please be seated, and a good morning to you all. Very nice to see you. Um, I don't have a whole lot other than what is printed in the Life Together section uh, of what we have here. So uh, today, of course, um, we will be enjoying a fellowship meal together. So please bring your appetite and uh, join us for that. Uh, Our study of Gentle and Lowly will continue next week. Um, So uh, please be in uh, reading for that, or at least thinking about that and join us for that. Uh, the women's prayer meeting is that still on for June the fifteenth at Joyce's Cottage at nine a.m. So if you're interested, presumably contact Joyce or Deneen or is anybody else in charge of this? All right, Joyce or Deneen on that. And um, prison ministry, I believe, is this Friday. So please keep that in your prayers as well. Um, is there anything else? All right, then I will uh, push to set, make this one of the all-time records for brevity of announcements. And uh, if you'll wait a few minutes, we will pray and uh, lunch together.